we're struggling to keep focused the way we want to, to stay focused. But I'd love to know that we've been able to impact the continent for the Lord, and that would be the greatest thing. And at the end, no matter what happens, if I can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, I'd be thrilled. Medical training in Africa for Africans. That's our topic today. Welcome to First Person and today's guest, Dr. Bruce Steffes. My name is Wayne Shepherd, and I'm looking forward to spending the next few minutes with you. You'll meet today's guest in just a moment. As we start this new year, I hope you'll make it a habit of joining us each week for First Person, whether it's on radio or through our podcast, which you can listen to a number of ways online, including through a free subscription on iTunes. And let us know what you're thinking by leaving comments at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Once again, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, several years ago when we started this program, one of my earliest guests was Dr. Bruce Steffes, a man I've known since we grew up together in the same church. Bruce had a stellar medical career, but reached the end of himself and even attempted suicide. But that's when the Lord rescued him and set his feet on a new path. For many years now, Bruce has dedicated his life to assisting in the training of doctors through the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. I wanted to do a follow-up with Bruce, especially since he's had personal connections with the Ebola crisis in Africa. And as we spoke on the phone recently, I asked him to begin by reviewing his life story. We talked about this on a previous uh, first person, uh, but a very brief story is that uh, I was born and raised in a Christian family, uh, but realized um, that uh, with time, my idea of God was one that I could never quite please. And so uh, it was a very difficult situation uh, for me. I uh, had uh, difficulties uh, not with academics and so forth, but in feeling fulfilled, feeling an idea that uh, that I was lovable and that God loved me. And so I went through medical school and I went through my residency and increasingly spiraled down from a spiritual standpoint and finally had a major spiritual crisis and even attempted my to take my life at one point. Mm. Uh, at that point, I threw myself on the couch late one evening after I had become divorced and, and lost my family. And I threw myself on that uh, couch and said, Lord, either you fix it or take me because I can't do this anymore. And there was the most overwhelming sense of God's presence and of his love and of his forgiveness. And uh, that has literally revolutionized my life. Now, the reality is, is all those things that were broken yep. were broken. Yep. Consequences, uh, he sure. There were consequences to pay, and I've continued to pay those. Um, but uh, knowing who God is and the fact that uh, he knew what I was going to be and what I did wrong, and he laid out his arms on that cross and died for me, that has made all the difference in the world. So that translated a little bit into my practice. Um, I was in practice in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina for uh, 16 or 17 years. And uh, over time, it being clear to me that God wanted me to quit by practicing general surgery as I was doing it, but he didn't bother to tell me exactly what it was I was supposed to do. And so uh, after I walked out of my office, I decided that I had uh, done a great job of controlling my own life and messing it up, so I was going to let him do it. Hmm. Out of the middle of uh, nowhere, I began to get calls about medical missions, and this was not something that I had ever really planned to do, but over the next year and a half, it became obvious that God was calling me into that. So my wife and I became um, short-term missionaries and uh, visited many, many uh, different uh, hospitals 
and then uh, with time uh, became involved with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. Well, your commitment to uh, serve God's kingdom the way that you have and giving your life to uh, medical missions comes at an interesting time. I mean, just last December, Time Magazine uh, named the Ebola Fighters as the person of the year, and you and your colleagues, uh, many of you are, you know, you share that honor, I think. Well, I'm not sure I, I do, but I sure know the people who have. Uh, Kent Brantley is somebody I look up to, uh, Rick um, Sakra at uh, Liberia, Debbie Eisenhut to uh, help set up the program there in Monrovia, and then, of course, um, uh, Jerry Brown is actually was actually the person who was uh, featured on the um, cover of the Time magazine mm-hmm. with his uh, in, in in his gear, mm-hmm. and uh, Jerry is one of our graduates. And then, unfortunately, of course, in uh, November we lost one of our graduates, yeah. uh, Martin Salia, mm-hmm. and uh, he had uh, had the opportunity to uh, live a better life. Uh, than what he was doing, but he felt so much that God was calling him to serve uh, the least of these, to serve his fellow Sierra Leoneans, that he went back knowing that the Ebola epidemic was raging and uh, unfortunately lost his life to the disease. You know, his story and the story of all these other people that you've mentioned, they're, they're so inspiring to us. And I know that the backdrop is the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. I want to learn about that and more. But tell me about these people. What what drives them? What Why do they do what they do when they could uh, be making a lot more money and living more comfortably someplace else? Well, both Martin, uh, Salia, and Jerry Brown were products of the disruption in their countries. Uh, they both suffered suffered with the Civil War. They both uh, had trouble getting through medical school because uh, everybody had left the country, and they would often take one lecture whenever the person could do it and not get another lecture for a week or two. And so uh, they really, really struggled to to even get their medical degree. But they were surrounded by uh, places where both in uh, Liberia and in Sierra Leone, uh, they were often less than a half a dozen, for example, fully qualified general surgeons in the entire country, uh, surgeons of any kind, not just general surgery, any kind of surgeons. And so in countries of six million people, you'd have six surgeons. I remember back in 2011, the last time I was with Martin uh, there, and we were working on some projects, uh, he and I standing there constituted one-third of the entire country's surgical workforce. Huh. And so these are people that, um, number one, struggled to get their medical education, number two, really had no opportunity for any kind of postgraduate training, et cetera. Uh, If you were very, very bright and very, very lucky, you might get some sort of scholarship to uh, train in Europe or in North America. But the problem with that is that um, once you go, 98% of those folks never come back. Mm -hmm. And so these were people that were committed to, to staying in their country but knew that they would have trouble with education. And so when we gave them the opportunity to be trained as surgeons, they jumped at it. And you started the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. Who's the we? Who's behind this, Bruce? Um, 1997, there was a missionary by the name of uh, Dave Thompson. He is a, I think, fourth-generation missionary uh, in his family. And he was a a surgeon in a small hospital in southern Gabon. Most people don't even know where Gabon is. Right. Uh, this is he was fourth hours further into the bush than Albert Schweitzer's famous hospital. And he had struggled for years to find someone to come alongside. Uh, when you are taking call 24-7, uh, 52 and a half, 
for years on end, you look for help. And he couldn't find anybody that would be interested in going out in these remote areas and being paid at the level that these small mission hospitals could be paid. And mission hospitals have always tried to train some people to do some things because otherwise you die. Uh, but he felt that we really needed to do it a little bit better. Now, in Africa and in Asia, the Christian Medical and Dental Association has a continuing medical education conference every other year. And this is a great opportunity for the missionaries themselves to keep up on their continuing education and to have a time of interaction. So in 1994 and 1996, Dave Thompson broached this idea with them about training surgeons at a higher level than the kind of apprenticeship that uh, had traditionally been done. Like the little story of the little red hen, everybody was willing to eat the bread, but nobody was willing to do the work to make the bread. (laughs) And so when uh, Dave started, he had a single resident from Angola uh, that came up to train with him, and there was one other surgeon in the SIM Galmi Hospital in Niger, uh, Dr. Harold Adolph, who was training a couple of guys from Madagascar. And that was our first start. Now, unfortunately, Dr. Adolph had some problems with his eyes and had to go back to the United States, so we were down to one program. Dave soldiered on for a while. I began in 2004 a second uh, training program in Cameroon uh, that came on board. And then starting in 2005 and 2006, we began to gain some traction and grow to the point that we have 13 programs right now in nine different countries. And uh, we are training uh, general surgeons as of January, we were training 65 uh, general surgeons. We also include some pediatric surgery and a fledgling orthopedic program that's in there. Now, 65 surgeons doesn't sound like a great deal. Yeah, it sounds uh, modest, but in, in, when you have nothing and go to that level, that, that's pretty significant. That's correct. In sub-Saharan Africa, there are 20 countries that have less than 20 surgeons of any kind. Mm. And uh, if we look at East Africa, the statistics I know the best, even Kenya, which has the best uh, statistics, has only one-fifth of the recommended World Health Organization number of surgeons. It's estimated that today, as we talk, 56 million people need surgery in sub-Saharan Africa, and most of them will die or suffer tremendously. And this isn't complex surgery. This isn't heart surgery. This is hernias, appendicitis, small bowel obstruction, care of trauma, C-sections, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the world that we live in, and we've been trying to train residents in that uh, environment. It is a program that is based on the American community hospital training that we do. Uh, That's kind of a unique paradigm around the world. And so it's basically the way we trained in 1970s in terms of the breadth of our training, although in Africa... General surgery is much, much broader because it is skin and its contents. It's mm-hmm. everything uh, yeah. that we have to take care of. You have to do a little orthopedics, a little urology, a little ENT, you know, whatever comes in the door. So we're doing this program in these mission hospitals. A lot of people don't understand that faith-based hospitals, church-owned hospitals, mission hospitals, still represent 40 to 70% of all the health care given in many African countries. That's right. Wow. And they, of course, tend to be out in the rural areas. So they are tremendously needed. And so we, we have started this program, and we uh, help uh, pay for their tuition, and, uh, uh, which essentially is a, a living stipend. We pay for their books. We pay for their uh, testing and, of course, the infrastructure that it takes to do all that. We have graduated 43 at this time. Now, the program is a little bit unusual because it's similar to perhaps the military scholarships that people know about. 
for every year of training that we give them, they owe us a year of service and mm-hmm. a place that we mutually agree upon. And so at the end of four or five years, they will go out and work another four or five years in a mission hospital or in some area where they can serve the least of these. And uh, that's really been the strength of the program. But I'm thrilled to announce, uh, as of right now anyway, 100% of our residents have stayed there even when they fulfilled their obligations. They're still serving. And that's because it isn't about money for them. It's a five-year program in general surgery, but it's five years of discipleship. And so they are serving the Lord and doing what the Lord wants them to do. And I just am absolutely extraordinarily proud of them because some of them are doing it in places like Ebola uh, countries or elsewise. And that's, of course, exactly what happened with Martin Salia. More with Dr. Bruce Steffes and the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons coming up today on First Person. Next time, a young widow whose husband was killed in Afghanistan. Whenever we live in a country where we don't have to face war on our own home front, it's important to remember that we are safe because the military is out there fighting for us. And it's just important to remember that freedom is not free and we should never take it for granted. Jane Horton is on a mission of her own, and you'll meet her next time on First Person. My guest today is my friend, Dr. Bruce Steffes. Bruce has dedicated his life to training doctors in Africa, along with many other men and women. And Bruce, I'm so grateful for what you're doing, although it's a fledgling effort, I know, and I know fundraising is always a always an issue. You're not a large organization. How does all this get paid for? <laughs> Through the Lord's goodness is the answer to your question. <laughs> um, 90% of our money comes from individuals who have come out and worked in the mission hospitals and come back and say, this makes more sense than anything else that we've seen. Mm-hmm. We have a relatively few number of uh, churches that support us, almost uh, nothing in the way of foundation support, etc. So this, these is, this is God's uh, work. We, we need to expand that. We need to go further. Um, we are thrilled, of course, that we have grown from uh, one program to nine programs, but there's no reason it can't be 90 eventually. Mm-hmm. And so... We're excited about uh, what God has in planned for us, uh, and yet um, the finances are an issue. Uh, our, presently, we're training 65 people on a budget of approximately $1.3 million, and that is, um, makes us a bigger general surgical program than anything in the United States, but our budget's quite a bit less. Yeah. And so um, it works because we have a tremendous number of people volunteering to, to make this happen. Um, and it works because God is behind it. Do you have both men and women who are in training? Yes, we have men and women. Uh, surgery has always been a field that has not been particularly um, favorable to women for a series of reasons, uh, but it's interesting to me over the last several years we've had uh, several more applicants, and we now have several uh, female uh, surgeons in, in practice. And I know each one of them has a story. I, I want you to make it oh, personal. I, I want you to make it real personal for us. Uh, pick out some okay. of those stories and just introduce us to these people. I, I won't get a chance to talk with them, but you can tell me about them. Okay. Let me tell you just how important this is one time. We, we have one resident who was born in the eastern part of the DRC, and he grew up in the time of the rebellions and the symbol rebellion and really struggled and finally went to medical school. And he thought he would never have uh, training. 
he finally heard somehow through the grapevine about to the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons and applied and was accepted. Now, we do require for them to find their own way to the training program, and he was going to go from DRC to the hospital, uh, Bangalore Hospital in Gabon. The local government was putting on a curfew, and people were not supposed to travel. So he took one child, and his wife took another child, and they snuck through the back paths of their village and went down to the Congo River, found a barge, and then literally floated the entire length of the Congo River on this barge, open open to the air, buying whatever food they could buy at the shore and uh, living under the stars. By the time they got to Kinshasa uh, downstream, uh, the one daughter was comatose from cerebral malaria. Oh. So he took the money that he had and got her treated, and praise God, she survived it. That's a highly lethal uh, condition. But then he found that he didn't have enough money to fly from there to Gabon. And so um, he went across the river to uh, Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo, and literally his family walked and hitchhiked all the way to the border of uh, Gabon. He had a visa, but he getting across the border was a very risky situation. He found someone that showed him kind of a back way, and he eventually showed up in the police department on the other side of the border saying, here's my visa, please stamp it. And they said to him, well, how did you possibly get here? And he said, here's my visa, please stamp it. <laughs> and he said, well, yes, but how did you get across the border? Here's my visa, please uh, stamp it. And so eventually <laughs> it was stamped, and he walked the other 90 miles to oh. the program and then did five years. This is the kind of thing that we're we're talking about. We had another man. Uh, from southern Madagascar, who had a long history of being a missionary in that area and planting churches, and he had planted literally dozens of churches, walking to from town to town to plant these churches. But uh, he became a physician and then uh, found uh, that he was to be undergo training. He came to the training program, and this, this story actually was in Gabon as well, and when he got there, he nearly died from overwhelming TB, and so he was sick for a long time. That delayed his training, but he survived. He went through the training. He was a guy who struggled academically. He he struggled, but he loved the Lord, and he told the patients about Jesus Christ. And one of the things that is so important to realize is that I may be able to offer physical healing, but the best I can do is 70 years. But if I can introduce them to the great physician mm-hmm. who will heal their soul, it's an eternity. And so he, he graduated, and he struggled, and he finally went back there, and he went back to a place where still there's not much in the way of supplies and so forth. About six months later, I got an email from him saying that he had done 600 and some odd cases in the previous six months, which is an awesome amount of work. And then he said that he had done that with a single set of instruments. And so he would do the surgery and then clean them and then boil them and do it again, et cetera. He's still there to this very day making less than $200 a month. Um, he could go to the big city. He could make a, a strong living, but he's serving the Lord where he thinks the Lord wants him to be. Yeah, all right. In, in these cases and in so many others, I mean, you, you rub shoulders with these these dear people and, and you uh, share your expertise with them and, and others do as well, but you, you live close with them. What's going on in their life? What's driving them? Is it is it purely God calling them to do this? I think so. I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, they have a, a passion for their people, a passion for their tribe. They often want to go back to their village where they saw people dying of of diseases that should be easily treated, and they want to go back and they want to make a difference. Hmm. Uh, Martin Salia uh, is an example. He he 
was trained for four years. He did his obligation for four years. Uh, he could have very easily gone into private practice there in Freetown or some other place. Well, he was a U.S. citizen. He could have come to the States and lived comfortably. He could have come to the, he could have come to the States with his wife. But um, he decided that what he needed to do was to take care of his own people. So uh, even when the Ebola, vir- uh, the Ebola uh, epidemic was, was rampant, he talked with his family and he said, I'm sorry, but I need to go back. This is what God is calling me to do. Uh, he wanted to make a difference and he wanted to introduce them to Christ and he paid the ultimate price. You know, Matthew fifteen thirteen says that uh, greater love has no man than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. Must be humbling for you to see their example. Well, you know, a lot of times in my life I've had the uh, feeling that, uh, you know, God's going to be pretty lucky to have me and look at what I've done for him and all this sort of thing. And then when I realize that if I stand in the same line into the pearly gates with these guys, I'm going to be so far at the back it won't even be funny. (laughs) Yeah. What have they taught you, Bruce? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I think what they've taught me most of all was humility, faith. Uh, I, I tend to be very driven. I remember one said, why can you not just enjoy what God has given to you today and not worry about everything else that we can't control? Um, I'm not sure I've learned that lesson, but I know that I should learn that lesson because I watch it in their lives, the joy, the peace that they have. What do you think the future for the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons is? I know you'd, you have a vision. Um, the means is something else, but what, what would you like to see happen? I would like to see it in virtually every country in Africa. I'd like to see several institutions in every country. I'd like it to be uh, an institution which manifests excellence in education, excellence in patient care, but most of all has evangelism as its core. Uh, again, to save a soul is much more important than to save a body. I think we have the potential of being much larger and much more effective than we are, uh, but I want it for his glory and not for ours. Uh, we are facing some issues. Uh, in many of the countries, they're becoming secularized, and uh, we're having, under pressure to accept people of different faiths uh, to uh, basically secularize our program. That's a very slippery slope, as you know, and a great number of mission hospitals have stepped on that slope and slid off the other end. And uh, we're so we're, we're struggling to keep focused the way we want to to stay focused. But I'd love to know that we've been able to impact a continent for the for the Lord, and that would be the greatest thing. And at the end, no matter what happens, if I can hear "Well done, thou good and faithful servant," I'd be thrilled. Dr. Bruce Steffes talking about the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. This is an organization that doesn't have a lot of financial resources and could really use your help. We've placed links to a website and a Facebook page where you can learn more. Those links are found at firstpersoninterview.com. Also at the website, you'll find a schedule of some interesting guests coming up in the weeks ahead in this new year, plus a complete audio archive. Please visit firstpersoninterview.com. And then to leave a comment on what you hear on this program, we have a Facebook page dedicated for that purpose. It's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, a young war widow of a soldier killed in Afghanistan. Jane Horton joins us next time. 
Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, thanking you for listening today to First Person. First Person.